Uh, Father, as we look at your word now, um, we pray that you'd keep doing this work on our heart that you've been doing on the hearts of people at Grace Road. Uh, we know that you have, have grown and blessed this church because of your gospel. It's not because of us. It's not because we're awesome. It's not because we have anything figured out. Uh, but it's because you're awesome, and it's because your gospel works on our hearts, and you change us as we see you for who you are, as we believe in you more. Um, so, Father, we just ask you that you would continue to do that work today. We know that, that anything that we build would be blown away uh, in a second if you're not building that house. So, so build the house. Build it in us this morning. Help us to see you in your word and be transformed. Help us to see your glory and help us to see your love. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Well, we're going to Mark chapter 9 today. We are over the midway point of this book. And the reason that we're studying through the book of Mark and the reason that we open the Bible every week is to reveal to us who Jesus is. And the reason we do that is because we Christians believe that Jesus is God. We believe that there's no more important question than who is our creator, what's our creator like, and how are we supposed to relate to that creator? Now, every religion makes an attempt at answering those questions. Who made us? How do we relate to the one who made us? What are our responsibilities? And there are no more important questions than, than those. The most important thing in the world is that we would know who our creator is and that we would relate well to him. And we can talk about finding our purpose in life, but the truth is we'll never find our purpose in life unless we find out who the one is who gave us that purpose, unless we find out who our creator is. There's nothing that shapes the way that we live more than knowing who our God is. There's nothing that influences our lives more than, than our God. You know, if our God is the God of deism, who just sort of created everything and then spun it off and walked away and let everything run on its own, then that will affect the way that we live. If God's not, no longer involved in his creation, if he doesn't care what we're doing here, then we'll just live how we want to live. If God doesn't care much about the world he made, we won't care much about the world that he made. The God that we worship affects the way that we live. You know, if our God is the God of atheism or the no God of atheism, if we believe there is no creator, then we will live by the golden rule of the survival of the fittest, um, you know, that we all got here by, by fighting our way to the top and we'll live our lives by fighting our way to the top. If our God is the God of pleasure, then we'll pursue pleasure and in the end we'll become empty and superficial and eventually very jaded and unhappy people. We always become like the God that we worship, and wherever our eyes are, wherever our eyes are fixed, that's the direction that we go in our lives. I remember when I was first learning how to drive, I had to be very careful to look off on the horizon down at the end of the road, because if I looked off to the side at something real close to me, I would very quickly steer toward that. So, so I had to keep my eyes way off there, driving a long straight line, because if a friend over here is standing by the side of the road and he waves at me, Pretty soon he's going to have to jump in the ditch because I'm waving back and veering toward him. We, we tend to drive our lives in the direction that our eyes go. And if we fix our eyes on Jesus, then we head toward Jesus. If we know who he is, if we know what he's like, then that changes what our lives are like. Now, now to know who he is, to know who our God is, we don't just reason our way there and try to think up what must God be like. Uh, we don't take a guess at what he would be like. We don't make God in our own image we look to the Bible that tells us who Jesus is, and because Jesus is God, we know exactly what God is like by looking at Christ. Listen to Hebrews 1.1. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, in the exact imprint of his nature, 
and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So we believe that Jesus is God. We believe that he created the world. We believe that he is the radiance of the glory of God, and that when we look to Jesus, we see an exact imprint of the nature of God. So if we want to know, does God love, we look to Jesus, and we see Jesus laying down his life for his enemies on the cross, and now we know how much God loves. If we want to know if God is holy and just, we look to Jesus in the way that on the cross, Jesus showed that every sin needed to be punished. There did need to be retribution. There needed to be payment made. So we see the justice of God when we look to Jesus. We know God not just because we thought things through, not because we took a good guess and came up with a good idea, but because God revealed to us who he is like in his son, Jesus Christ. Now, some people would say, well, this is pretty arrogant. I mean, to to say that we know what God is like, I mean, who are we to say that we know what God is like at all? And, And there's some truth to that, because none of us can fully know God. He's infinite, and we're finite. He's big. We're small. So none of us will ever say, you know what I've got completely figured out? God. Um, You know, I, I know everything there is to know about God. We can't. We'll be spending all eternity growing in our knowledge of God, getting to know him more, getting stronger in our walk with him, seeing nuances that we didn't know were there. We'll, there's always something to learn about God, always more room to grow in our knowledge of him. So we can't know him fully But because he revealed some stuff to us about who he is in Jesus Christ, we can know him truly. There are some true things we can know about God. And we can look at the world he made and know some things about him. I mean, driving in this morning, if you didn't notice the beauty, something's wrong. Um, Something's wrong with your eyes. It looked like Narnia everywhere. Um, The sun shining off the snow. And we can look at the creation that God made and know that he's a creator. We can know that he's a God who loves beauty, a God who is a God of, of art and beauty. We can look at the Bible that he inspired and hear the things that he says about who he is. But more than any other place in the universe, we look to Jesus to see what God is like. And if we really want to see our lives changed, and I hope we do, then there's no better way to see our lives change than to know who Jesus is. So in the passage today in Mark, we're going to see Jesus, and we're going to see some of his attributes. We'll see them up in glory on a mountain. We'll see them down in the dirty messiness of the world. And the whole hope, anytime we open the scriptures, that we would see Jesus for who he is, and we would be transformed accordingly. So Mark chapter 9, verse 1. Jesus is talking to his disciples. It says, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. So Jesus talks to his disciples and he says, some of you who are standing here are going to see the kingdom of God come with power. Six days later, he brings them up onto this high mountain. According to Luke's gospel, when all this happened, his disciples, were, their eyes were heavy with sleep. So this is probably going on at night, which makes the contrast even more striking. And when they get up on the mountain, Jesus is transfigured in front of them. And it's the, the Greek word metamorphothai, where we get our word metamorphosis. He's changed brilliantly in front of them. And the big change is that he starts to radiate light. He's bright with a blinding, glaring whiteness, probably similar to if you were to look at the snow in a field driving in today, or just that 
that blinding brightness of the sun reflecting off the field, Jesus is even whiter and brighter than that in front of all these disciples, which I'm sure is pretty startling if you're drowsy. You know, they, they've walked up the mountain, maybe they're, they're sitting down, spending the evening around the campfire, just relaxing, their eyes are getting heavy with sleep, it's dark out there, they're looking at the clear stars, and then, bam, Jesus is transfigured in front of them, and he's glowing, and Mark makes it really clear that this wasn't just normal white, like he got a new white shirt. He says, these clothes, they're whiter than any person could get them. He's got this radiance and this glory, and he's glowing in front of them. You know, one of the attributes of Jesus Christ, of our God, is that he is holy. Now, when we talk about God being holy, one of the things that means is that he's pure, totally clean, free from any spot, free from any sin, and Jesus Christ is that way. Uh, Jesus, though he was completely a man, was also completely, is also completely God. So he never sinned. He never fell short of God's standards. Now, we all have, especially on a heart level, when you look at the ways that our heart and motives are shaped and you look at the different temptations in our heart and the way that we run after them in our hearts, Jesus never fell in any way. He's totally clean, totally holy, totally pure. And you see this in this absolute pure superhuman whiteness that he displays in front of people. So we have this perfectly holy God. But when we talk about him being holy, it doesn't just mean that he's free from sin and that he's completely pure. It also means that he is far above us. He's separate from us. That, yeah, he's completely man, but also because he's completely God, he's something far more amazing than any of us are. He's way up there, way above. He's got this radiance of light that no human could ever get him because he wasn't just human. He's also God and God completely. So we see the holiness and purity of of Jesus as he radiates in front of them. And then verse 4, it says, And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So not only is Jesus glowing in front of them, but suddenly the two biggest heroes in the Old Testament show up, and they're talking to Jesus. They're having a conversation with him. And this is back before Skype. So, so you had to do these transfiguration conferences. And so here they are, up on the mountain. Jesus glows, he's shining, and Moses and Elijah show up to talk to him. Now, Mark doesn't give us as many details. He doesn't tell us what they're talking about, but listen to what Luke said. It says, Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And that word for departure there is a word that's translated exodus in other places. So they come, and they're talking to Jesus, and the big thing that they're talking to him about is this exodus that he's about to lead when he goes down to Jerusalem. So we learn a few different things about Jesus here. Number one, we learn that he is going to be a rescuer. I mean, these guys, Moses, who is the one who gave the law of God, Elijah, who was a prophet, they come, and they're talking to Jesus, but they're not talking to him just about the new teachings he's going to bring when he comes down from the mountain. They're not talking to him about all the new law that he's going to teach. They're not talking to him about the new way that he's going to show us to live, even though he does those things. They're talking to him about a rescue that he's about to accomplish. And just like Moses was the one that God used to rescue his people from Egypt, lead them across the sea, and get them into the promised land, or they got there eventually, just like Moses did that, Jesus Christ is going to be the one who accomplishes a rescue when he goes down to Jerusalem. So he's more than just a teacher, he's actually a savior, he's actually a rescuer. You know, we also know from this scene that Jesus is going to be someone who goes down and changes the world. 
In the Old Testament, Moses had gone up on a mountain in a similar scene to this, where he was talking to God, and when he came back down, he was glowing, and he came with the Ten Commandments in his hand. And those Ten Commandments, once they were given, they absolutely changed the world. They changed the world of the Jews, and then they changed the world to, to where today great societies are built on those commandments all over the place. So if Moses goes up on the mountain and has this experience with this God who glows, certainly when Jesus comes down, he's going to change the world in even bigger ways than Moses did. Another thing we see really clearly about Jesus here is that he's God. You know, back in the Old Testament, Moses went up on the mountain, and it says that he talked to God face to face like someone would talk to his friend. And here, Moses is up on the mountain again, and who's he talking to face to face? He's talking to Jesus. So Jesus is not just a great teacher. He's not just the next great prophet. He is actually God himself. So in all of this, we see his deity. We see his importance. We see that he's a rescuer. We see that he's a savior. And when these guys see it, the guys that Jesus brought up on the mountain with him, they fall down in fear because there's danger there. In the Old Testament, God had warned, if you ever look at me and, and see my face, you'll die. When Moses went up on the mountain to meet with God, God said, nobody else can touch this mountain. He said, even if your cattle touch this mountain, they're going to die. So Moses was enabled to go up onto the mountain, but apparently for everybody else, it was like a big bug zapper. And if you, you came near that glory of God, you touched it and you died. And so, so that's the way it was. When, when God was there, it was holy ground. It was serious. You didn't look on him and live. You didn't touch the mountain and live. You know, and past when this glory cloud would descend, it would go into a tent, into the tabernacle that they had built. And that was the place that held the glory of God. And if you went in there under the wrong terms at the wrong time and you were the wrong person, you would die when you went in there. You know, after that tabernacle was gone, there was a temple that was built, and that was the place where the glory of God dwelled. And if you went in to the innermost part of that temple in, in, in an unholy way, in a way that wasn't prescribed by God, you would die. So here, Peter, James, and John, they're up on the mountain. They're looking right at it, and so they're fearful. Now, fear is not an emotion we would connect with God very much in America today. You know, our God that, that we've made up around here is just kind of sweet and wimpy, um, where, where he's up there sprinkling blessings and being good to people and nice and being kind. You know, he's got perfectly groomed hair. He looks like Orlando Bloom in Lord of the Rings, kind of like. He's just this perfect, very nice, sweet sky fairy who never heard, would never hurt a fly. But when we look at the God of the Bible, the God who is high and holy and exalted, we see that he is a God who is to be feared. And we're, we approach God pretty lightly. You know, we have our Jesus is my homeboy t-shirts. But these guys, when they saw Jesus in all of his glory, weren't immediately thinking, he's my homeboy. They, they weren't immediately thinking, man, I feel like I could get real close to him. They were feeling like he is high and holy and amazing and other. And they were fearful and they fell down. Now, right now would be a good time for everybody to be quiet and just take it all in, but you can always count on Peter for some comic relief. So verse 5, it says... And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi. Now, Rabbi means teacher, which is a little bit of an understatement at this point. You know, he's, he's glowing in front of him, and Peter's thinking of the right label. What do I call him? Teacher. So he says, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. 
So, so there's this glowing, there's this radiance, there's this conversation where Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus. Everything's quiet, and Peter decides that now would be an appropriate time for me to contribute something. He's, he's that guy. Um, <laughs> If you've ever been to a movie where it's one of those really emotional movies where everything is just like pulling on heartstrings left and right, and after the movie, everybody just sits in stunned silence, but there's always that one guy somewhere that you can count on to break that silence and say something dumb. Like the guy over there who says, you know, in that one scene where everybody's there, tears are streaming down everybody's faces, nobody's getting up to leave yet, and all of a sudden, someone's got to open his mouth. That's Peter. <laughs> so, so he says, uh, teacher. It's good that we're here, <laughs> which is also funny because, <laughs> I mean, Jesus is up there, and he's kind of got the dream team assembled. You've got Jesus who's there. You've got the voice of the Father. You've got the Spirit. So the whole Trinity is active up on the mountain. You've got Moses and Elijah, and Peter says, hey, Jesus, this makes total sense that I'm here. Um, <laughs> while you're getting the dream team together, why wouldn't you have Peter? You've got Moses, Elijah, and Peter the fisherman, of course. Um, this is great. You, you made a good decision by having me here. And then he says, I've got an idea because transfigured glowing Jesus looks like he's looking for suggestions. So, so Peter says, I know what we could do. Let's do this. Remember how back in the Old Testament they built that tabernacle? They built that big tent for the glory of God to dwell in? Let's do that again. Let's build three of those things. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And that way the glory of God could stay there. People won't get too close. You won't have people dying and stuff. And we'll also be able to have prominence again. I mean, 600 years before this, the glory of God had left. It departed. It went up. And it hadn't been around for 600 years. In those 600 years, things had fallen apart. God's people had lost their freedom. They had been invaded by this foreign army. Things were not good for the Jews since the glory of God left. And Peter says, now it's back, so let's build some tabernacles. So that's maybe what he was thinking, but when God tells us why Peter said what he said, he says this in verse 6. Here's God's uh, exegesis of what Peter says. He says, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. <laughs> so we, we look at this and say, why did Peter say all this? And God says, it was crazy talk. <laughs> Peter, he was crazy because he was scared. He just started talking because he was Peter, didn't know what to say, but it felt a need to say something. And so he said all of this. And so what does God do to respond? Verse 7, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud this is my beloved son. Listen to him. So Peter's talking and God says, listen to Jesus. Not, not crazy talk, Peter. Listen to Jesus. And says, and suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. So, so follow the flow here. Jesus is glowing. The glory of God is there. Peter says, let's build a tabernacle so we can contain this glory of God. God says, listen to my son. And when they look up, it's just Jesus there. What God's saying in the flow here is that the place where God's glory dwells for us now is in Jesus. Again, the verses we started with, Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, guys like Elijah. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So God is, is holding up his son, Jesus, and saying he is the place where the glory of God dwells. He is the place that holds the glory of God, not a tabernacle anymore, not even these prophets. It's all about Jesus now. And when John wrote his gospel, he said this in John 1.14, he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
Now, when he says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that word dwelt is the word tabernacled. That Jesus came, he became the tabernacle among us. He became the place where the glory of God dwells. He is where God speaks to us. Now, this is important for us for a number of reasons. For one, we all want to see God act in our day. You know, we read through these miracles in the Bible, these great moments, and we think, oh, how awesome would it be if God would do some of those things? And, and I believe that God is a God who does miracles. I think he does massive, spectacular, supernatural things. But according to the flow of this story, and the clear testimony of the Bible, is that God is most glorious re- gloriously revealed to us in Jesus. Not in miracles, not in any of God's gifts to us, but Jesus is the ultimate place where the glory of God dwells. I mean, God can do whatever miracles he wants, but nothing compares to what we already have in Jesus. And not only that, because we've now, on the other side of the cross, we know that Jesus died and he was buried and he rose again. We know that he conquered death. We know the gospel. We have a completed Bible. Because we have all of those things, we have something that's even more amazing than Jesus glowing and being transfigured in front of us. We have this complete testimony about Jesus, the Son of God, in the Bible. You say, okay, so are you saying that the Bible is actually a better word from God than seeing Jesus glowing up on a mountain? Because, you know, I've, I've got Bible and that's cool, but this is like, I mean, there's special effects up on the mountain. This, that's the kind of thing we want to see. I mean, wouldn't it be amazing if the glory of God descended here? And there are definitely church movements that aim to see that happen, where they want to see a glory cloud come down and fill their space when they worship. But if we were to ask Peter, hey, Peter, which is better, being up on the mountain, seeing Jesus transfigured, or having the Bible that gives us the testimony about Jesus, he would tell us the Bible's better. You say, I don't believe you. Let me show you. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. Hold your finger in Mark, because Peter did tell us. Um, he, he told us what he thought about this whole thing. Uh, 2 Peter 1.16, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter says, this Jesus thing is real because we were there. We were up on the mountain. We heard the voice. We heard God affirm that Jesus is who he says he is. And then verse 19, and we have something more sure the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So he says, we were up there on the mountain. We saw the glory of Jesus And we have something even more sure than that, the scriptures. He says the scriptures that tell us about Jesus are more sure than even that miraculous occurrence up on the top of the mountain. I mean, this is Peter, a guy who was there to see both. He was there to see Bible. He's there to see Jesus transfigured. And he says, I'll take Bible any day of the week. He's the guy to ask. And that's what he says. I mean, if you want to know if there's better skiing at Vail or or at Breckenridge, You've got to ask someone who's skied both places. And, and here's Peter. He's skied both hills, and he says, 
the Bible's better. The word of God is better. He saw the face of Jesus glowing, but in the Bible, we see the face of Jesus Christ on every page, telling us the story of his life, telling us the story of his glory, but then also telling us the ultimate story of his death, burial, and resurrection for us. So, so what do we want to see happen when we gather together in worship? We are pursuing passionate, gospel-centered worship. We want to sing songs that tell us true things about Jesus and sing true things to Jesus. But our ultimate goal is not for a glory cloud to come down. Our ultimate goal is that Jesus would be revealed to every heart when we gather together, because he's ultimate. Our goal is to open up the scriptures, and we don't think that God is not working miracles when we open up the Bible and teach it. We think it's an even better miracle than anything else that he does when we believe the testimony about Jesus that's written in the Bible. He's the tabernacle. He's the place where the glory of God dwells. And this is also important for us today because it tells us that we no longer need a place to hold the glory of God. You know, Peter was still thinking that. He was still thinking, we got to build a tent to hold this glory What God says is that Jesus holds that glory. And he tells us that when two or three of us are gathered together in his name, Jesus is here among us. So the glory of God is here wherever here is. This is the reason that Christians don't have a holy city. We've got great cities. I would love to go see Jerusalem sometime. I'd love to go see the places where Jesus walked. That would be, be fantastic and would probably shine a lot of light on the scripture. But ultimately, it doesn't matter if I ever make it there. We don't make pilgrimages as Christians. We don't have a specific city where the glory of God dwells. We also don't have buildings where the glory of God dwells. You know, we can have big cathedrals and great architecture to remind us of the architecture and beauty and wisdom of God. We can have those things, but we don't have to. We don't have buildings that bridge any gap between us and God. The only one who bridges that gap is Jesus. So Christians can worship in majestic cathedrals. They can also worship in German beer halls. Um, They can can worship in movie theaters. They can worship in warehouses. They can worship outside if they don't live in Rochester. They They can worship anywhere, and Jesus is there among us. We don't need a building to connect us to God. The glory of God dwells in Jesus. So that's good news for us. That's good news as we look at at the years ahead and we say, we don't know what other locations we're going to have to add at Grace Road. We don't know what this is going to look like. Ultimately, Jesus will be there. It doesn't matter what kind of space it is. And if someone wants to give us a majestic cathedral with great architecture, we'll worship there. That would be cool. It'd have great acoustics and we'll make sure we paint it up and still make it look hipster enough for Grace Road. But um, but we'll, we'll take that. But if it's a warehouse... We'll take that. Wherever the people of God go, the glory of God goes because Jesus goes with them. And so, so that's true for us. Acts 17, 24 says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He doesn't live in temples anymore. The glory of God dwells in Jesus. So we see all this about Jesus, and you wonder, what's the next move? What what else are we going to learn about his heart next? What's the next big miracle? Look at Mark chapter 9, verse 14. It says, And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. So Jesus' next move is to come down from the mountain. And when he comes down from the mountain and unveils his glory in flesh again, they don't see him glowing anymore. They don't see how awesome he is. He comes down where all these people are arguing. Uh, it, there's big commotion, and they're fighting about something. So this tells us something huge about the heart of God. 
that we have this God who's so far above us, so holy, so glorious, but who steps down into the mess of this world, who steps down into broken lives in the world of broken people, steps down into the world of drama, and gets in among the mess to heal and to change. Verse 15. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they were not able. So Jesus comes down in the world where people are fighting and bickering, and a dad comes up to him, tears in his eyes. My son, his whole life, he's got this demon. And this demon is causing him to foam at the mouth and making him rigid. Later on, he'll tell Jesus that it throws him into a fire. It's trying to kill him. So their life has been tormented by this demon that is wrecking the life of this, this son. Now, Jesus' disciples were trying to heal this boy, but they couldn't do it. They had their formulas for casting out demons, and their formulas weren't working. Uh, the religious leaders were there fighting with them. The scribes were there fighting, probably because they were doing it wrong. The scribes had their formulas for casting out demons. Nobody's getting the job done. They're all trying, trying different things, arguing about how it's done. But regardless of how it's supposed to be done, it's not getting done. And this boy is there tormented by a demon. Verse 19, And he answered them, O faithless generation, How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. So this dad comes up and he's begging Jesus. And he didn't see the glory of Jesus that those other disciples saw. Jesus isn't glowing anymore. He's back in his veil. He's back in his flesh. The dad doesn't see it. Jesus just looks like any other man. And he comes up and he says, if you can do anything, help me. And Jesus says, if I can, I can do anything for someone who believes. And this dad says, Jesus, I believe, but there's a big part of me that still doesn't believe. I've got some huge doubts. I I don't know who you are. I don't trust you. He says these things to Jesus. And so you wonder, what does a God who's glorious and holy and above us and who is to be feared, what does he do with someone who comes up to him and says, I don't believe in you? Not enough. Now, the religious answer would be that Jesus says to this guy, well, go clean yourself up. Go work on your faith. When you drum up enough faith and and you can say that you really believe in me without any doubts whatsoever, then come back to me. Maybe then I'll do something. But that isn't Jesus' answer. Jesus' answer is to respond to this guy who says, I do believe, but help my unbelief. I admit that I've fallen short. I admit that I've failed. I admit that I'm not who I should be. I don't believe like I should. My vision of you is cloudy. I'm messed up, Jesus. Would you help me? Verse 25. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him 
and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. So look who Jesus responds to here. He, he doesn't go and respond to the religious people who think they've got their formula for casting out demons. He doesn't go and coddle the disciples who think they've got everything together, they've got their formula he responds to the guy who comes to him humble and broken and recognizes he doesn't even barely believe he's the one that Jesus blesses. So we have this high and holy and perfect and separate God who steps down into the mess of the world to actively bless the humble. This new Isaiah 57, verse 15. It says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So Jesus, who's high and lifted up, dwells in the high and holy place and steps into a messy world to bless the broken, to heal the hurting, and to respond to people whose faith is weak. Those are the people that he blesses. And this is good news for us today because if we're honest, none of us can come in saying, my faith is really strong. And we've got some faith, and, and maybe it's grown. Hopefully it's stronger than it once was if you've been a Christian for a long time. But the gospel that we believe is not that Jesus comes and responds only to people with perfect faith and perfect lives. He comes to people with imperfect faith, very imperfect lives, and blesses us. Jesus said it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And the way that we go to Christ is not by going out and making ourselves well so that he'll accept us. The way we go to Christ is by recognizing our lowliness, our brokenness, our weak faith, and knowing that it's that kind of faith when brought to Jesus that's accepted. There's an old Puritan prayer called the Valley of Vision, and, and it says this. It says, Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, you have brought me to the Valley of Vision where I live in the depths but see you in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold your glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from the deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter your stars shine. Let me find your light in my darkness, your life in my death, your joy in my sorrow, your grace in my sin, your riches in my poverty, your glory in my valley. Remember, remember there's a big difference between religion and the gospel. Religion says clean yourself up and then present yourself to God and maybe he'll accept you. The gospel says admit your sinfulness. Admit your brokenness. Admit your weak faith. And then believe in what Jesus did for you, that he came to you. That though he is high and holy, he became meek and lowly. He stepped into this messy world and now we know the whole story where he came and he died on the cross to pay the price for sinners. He died for people whose faith is weak like our faith is weak. 
He died for people possessed with demons, died for people with addictions, died for people with sin, died for people who would recognize their sinfulness. He died for the sick. And so let's resist the temptation to try to make ourselves well, to get God to like us. Let's recognize that the one that he likes, the one that he blesses in this story is the one who confesses his weakness and his sin. And sometimes we're good at doing this. We're good at confessing some of our sin from the past. We love to have our big testimony stories where we say, let me tell you what I was like 15 years ago. It was bad, but then Jesus came and changed me. And then we're pretty quiet about the sins in the last 15 years. Uh, We're pretty quiet about this week. But the message of the gospel is that we need to continually confess sin to continually find the daily grace of Christ. And we, we love our sins that are caged in the past, but we don't like to confess the ones that are loose in the present right now. You know, I like going to the zoo, and we like to go there and, and see the tigers when they're in a cage, because we see this thing that has so much destructive force, but it's caged in, so it can't do anything. But if we go to the zoo and someone comes over the loudspeaker and says, there's a tiger loose in the zoo, we don't want to see the tiger anymore. Uh, we, we want to get home. We hope that, that the antelopes are more appetizing to that tiger than we are. We want to get out of there. And we love to confess our sin that's caged in the past, that's safely back there 15 years ago, not doing any harm to us today. But we don't confess today's sins, today's weaknesses, today's struggles. We're, we're afraid of what kind of damage that could do. There will be these other people who won't like me and won't respect me. What will the Christians think? What will my church think? What will my spouse think? I could never say these things because they're too alive and active and loose today. Well, if we really want to find that daily grace of Christ, we need to confess the daily sins, the things that are going on now, and be a group of people that love and accept one another, not because we bring a good resume to each other and say, look how good I was this week, but because Jesus Christ died and was buried and rose again, and he did all that in our behalf. We can be a group of people who, when we get together, are ready to confess sin, are ready to display weakness, are ready to say, here's where I fell short, confess our sins to one another, and pray for one another that we might be healed. We're called to be not a religious body that thinks we have it all together and we look down at everybody else, but a transparent, gospel-centered body that says that we're broken, but the grace of God is enough to forgive us and in the long run to change us. You know, we should all be like this father in this story who comes to Jesus every single Sunday when we get together to worship, and we're saying, Jesus, I do believe, but help my unbelief. My belief isn't complete. My righteousness is far from complete. My life this week was far from complete. And if we really believe that, then Jesus becomes the hero of the story. I mean, we read through this story in Mark, and nobody else is the hero. The disciples aren't the hero. They can't cast out the demon. The religious leaders aren't the hero. They're the ones arguing with the disciples. This dad isn't the hero. He's confessing, I don't have good faith. I'm messed up. The only hero in that story is Jesus. And if we'll be people who can confess our sins to one another and and allow those things to be displayed for one another, then Jesus can be the hero of our lives too. Just to wrap up the story, verse 28, it says, when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? Jesus, we were trying. We've cast out demons before. We did what you told us to do before. We cast them out. So, so why couldn't we do it? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So here he gives them a little bit of a rebuke. They were trying to cast out these demons without praying. 
They were trying to accomplish the work of Jesus without ever appealing to Jesus and trusting in Jesus. And Jesus says, guys, I didn't choose you to be on my team so you could feel self-sufficient, so you could feel like you've got it all together, so you could feel like you don't need me. I chose you to be on my team of people who do need me, who continually cry out to me for help, who continually live in a state of dependence on me. And this is an important call for us, too. I mean, we know that we have a high and holy God who stepped into our messy world to rescue us. We know that we're called to follow in those footsteps and go out into all the messes of the world, all the brokenness, all the sin, all the darkness all around us. We're called to be there to bring the gospel to those places. But when we go, we need to go in a spirit of dependence upon God, where we go out prayerfully. We go out recognizing that anything that we want to do in this city, anything we want our church to become, none of it is going to be accomplished unless Jesus accomplishes it. We've got to do things in a way so that Jesus is the hero of the story, not so that we are. And so as we go out this week and step into the messes and step into the brokenness and try to help and heal and do all the things that the followers of Christ are called to do as we try to spread the gospel, we, we shouldn't try to do it without prayer shouldn't try to do it without dependence because God has made us into his people to be dependent on him. The message of, of the gospel is that, that Jesus came to be the hero of the story, to step into broken lives, and to rescue. Let's be people who are radically dependent on him so that any good work that we get done out there or in here, he gets all of the glory for. For now, let's bow our heads and close our eyes, please. When we open the scriptures and, and see Jesus and we see his glory, that should bring about in us some confession, some repentance. We don't read the Bible and say, I'm doing pretty well. We don't read the Bible and say, man, I'm kind of a hero. We read the Bible and we see Jesus as the hero and we see the ways that we fall, fall short. So it would be good for us today to confess our lack of reliance on him. Confess the ways we really feel pretty self-sufficient the ways that we feel like we've got it all together, the ways that we don't pray like we should. To be like this dad who confesses to Jesus, you know, I believe, but I've still got an awful lot of unbelief. Help me. So Christian, spend some time confessing those things to God. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're not a, a follower of Christ, the good news of the Bible is not that you have to clean yourself up to get Jesus to accept you and now you can be one of these church people. The good news of the Bible is that Jesus stepped down into your mess so that he could rescue you. He came not just as a teacher to show you the way to live, though he did that. He came as a savior to bring about an exodus, to free you from Satan and sin and death, to lead you out of the captivity that you're in. That's great news. So the way to become a Christian, the way to have sins forgiven is not just by working hard to clean yourself up. It's by admitting your brokenness, admitting your lack of faith, by saying, I've got unbelief, I've got sin, I've fallen short of God's glory. Because of my sin, because of my unbelief, God is someone who is to be feared because he's holy and righteous and just, that there's judgment and that there's hell and those things are true and they'll be true for me because of my sin. But then to go beyond that and to trust in Jesus. To trust that Jesus came to rescue you from all of that. That he came and he died. He was buried and he rose again so that whoever would turn from sin and unbelief and turn and trust in him 
would be forgiven, would be made his child, and would have everlasting life. That's good news. So if you come in recognizing that you fell short, then just believe the good news. Believe that he came to to bridge that gap between you and God. Believe that he died and was buried and rose again and turned from sin, turned from unbelief, and cry out to him. Doesn't matter what words you cry out to him with. But just saying, Jesus, I recognize my brokenness. I recognize my sinfulness. God, I, I recognize that you are a God to be feared. But I thank you that you came in perfect love that can cast out that fear. Thank you that you came and died and were buried and rose again. So I turn from sin and unbelief. And Jesus, I turn to you. I trust in you. I receive what you did on that cross. And if that's genuinely where our hearts are, then he receives us, he saves us, he cleanses us, he makes us right with him, and he calls us to follow his footsteps and go out into a broken, messy world in a spirit of reliance on him. That we need him every day. Every day we'll still have unbelief. Every day we'll still have sin that needs to be confessed. And every step of the way we confess those things, we cry out to him, we pray to him, and watch him do the miracles and be the hero of the story that we're living out. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this picture of Jesus we see. Thank you, Jesus, that you are high and holy, meek and lowly. Uh, That you stepped out of glory and you stepped into this broken and messed up valley to be our rescuer. To lead a great exodus, Lord, as you free us from Satan, sin, and death. And so, Jesus, we are here to worship you, and we pray that as we see this picture of you for who you are, we would be transformed by it. We'd leave here different we leave here as humble servants of the gospel in our town who love people well, who, who serve people well and do it all in a spirit.